This week on The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, we continue in the prophet Micah with prophets denounced, the mountain of the Lord's house, the Lord of the whole earth, O little town of Bethlehem, and a remnant delivered. Join me, Pastor Will Whedon, for The Word of the Lord Endures Forever, your daily 15-minute verse-by-verse Bible study on demand. Listen at thewordendures.org or your favorite podcast provider. So, death is something that we all naturally fear. Why do we fear it? For those who do not believe in God or in a life after death, they really have nothing to fear whatsoever, at least according to their belief system. For those who do, well, we do have something to fear. We, we rightly fear the judgment of God. For those of us who are in Christ, there's comfort in the midst of death, even knowing that at death we face that judgment. Welcome back to Issues Etc. I'm Todd Wilkin. Joining us to talk about Christian decision-making and the end of life, Pastor Dennis McFadden. He's pastoral assistant at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He spent nearly two decades as a senior living executive, and that includes as president and CEO of a large retirement community in Southern California. Dennis, welcome back. It's good to be with you, Todd. What do Christians know about the reality of death? Well, I suppose everyone is aware of the fact as we move through life, we become more painfully aware of the fact that death is inevitable. And I think in our culture, there's a lot of hallmark sentimentality that tries to soft soap it and mitigate it. And there are a lot of these celebration of life services that people have been drawn to and all of that. For the Christian, though, Luther got it right when he said that that death is both law and gospel. As law, it represents the wrath of God poured out upon humanity and rebellion against him. And as gospel, 1 Corinthians 15 is very clear that a kernel needs to fall into the ground and die in order to grow. And Luther said, in the midst of life, we are in death. In the midst of death, we're in life. And so for him, death was both a sign of the curse and the wrath of God, and it was also a sign of the gospel itself. So it was both law and gospel. What is assisted suicide, and why should Christians oppose it? Well, back in the 1970s, late 70s, the Synod got together and through the Commission on Theology and Church Relations, produced a document about euthanasia. And so much changed between that and 1993 that they came forth with a new statement in 1993. But almost immediately on the heels of that, a movement swept the United States. And at this point, there are 11 jurisdictions that permit physician-assisted suicide. And by that, it's meant you can get the doctor to actually give you a prescription for a killing drug that you can take. Whenever the matter is surveyed among the general population, the numbers keep inching upward of people who say 
that it should go beyond just the doctor prescribing it. The doctor should actually administer it the way doctors do in places like the Netherlands at times. And so in the 2020 Gallup survey, 74% of Americans said they believe that doctors should be permitted to end a person's life if the person or the family requests it. And while the numbers are lower for church-going Christians, they're inching up as well. About seven, eight years ago, a reputable survey of conservative Christians put the number at 42% that thought assisted suicide was a good idea. And I would suspect if that survey was taken in 2023, the number would be even higher than that. Why we should oppose it is, again, much of what I'm going to talk about reflects the latest document that came out two weeks ago by the Commission on Theology and Church Relations, which really didn't purport to be a new document, but merely a collation of best of thinking on a number of different subjects. And one of the best thinkers on the subject is Gilbert Mylander, who argues that there are two reasons why people profess to be in favor of assisted suicide, either because they say that personal autonomy is a value that should trump all others, or the twin argument that goes with it, which is more of an emotion-laden argument, is that you wouldn't want to have a person suffer if you could put them out of their misery, would you? I mean, after all, we put down dogs who are suffering. Can't we do the same thing for grandma or grandpa or a spouse who's suffering from intractable pain? And Mylander made a very good point. He said, those two arguments cancel each other out. If the first one is true, why would you need the second? If my right to do what I want with my own body is absolute, what difference does it make if I'm suffering? What if I'm just dissatisfied that I don't make enough money or I lost my job or I'm facing a uh, condition that's going to require constant medication and I don't want to be bothered with it? Shouldn't I be allowed to just end it all if my right to self-determination and personal autonomy is absolute? And on the other hand, if the idea of personal suffering is absolute, what difference does it make if a person says they want it or not? Shouldn't a family member be able to act on their behalf and put them out of their misery, even if they wanted to continue living? So I think that it's a very sticky wicket to get into the issue of assisted suicide. And yet many of your listeners live in states where, well, 11 jurisdictions where they can ask the doctor to give them the medication that will end it all now. Where do we begin to construct the theological foundation for a Christian understanding of human dignity and the sanctity of life? Well, as Christians, we begin with the account of Genesis, where we are made in the image of God, and where that implies that our creatureliness is a given, it's a gift from our Creator. And the Creator continues to hold title to that gift. We don't have the right to take it into our own hands. I think probably one of the most fulsome brief statements in all the Bible comes in the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah says, now this is what the Lord says, the one who created you, Jacob, the one who formed you, Israel, do not fear. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And in that just two-verse compass, it lays out the fact that our God is both creator and redeemer, and he has summoned us 
to himself and for his purposes. And that pretty much puts it out of the reach of this notion that I have a right to make that independent, autonomous decision on my own. What did Martin Luther have to say, if anything, on the subject? I think Luther's great statement in the small catechism is important because in his discussion of the first article, he lays down our creatureliness and the fact that we relate to God as creatures who were made by him and for reason that he chooses and he supports us and he has bestowed on us and given us our life and he is the absolute giver to our absolute receiver. And, you know, I think that that probably is one of the best things on the subject. But then when Luther returned from his 11-month sojourn at the Wartburg and found the Reformation in a state of disarray, on the first Sunday he was back, the first Sunday in March, he preached a sermon. We call it the Invocavit Sermon. And in that sermon, he has one of the best first lines of a sermon I've ever heard. The summons of death comes to all of us, and no one can die for another. Everyone must fight his own battle with death by himself alone. I will not be with you there, nor will you be with me. Therefore, everyone must himself know and be armed with the chief things that concern a Christian. And then he proceeded to unfold in March of 1722 what that involved, and his statements were absolutely on target, I believe, in terms of his affirmation of what our human dignity is all about. It's we are created, we are creatures, we are made by one who sustains us and provides for us, and he does it out of fatherly beneficence. So you had mentioned this concept of bodily autonomy. What is it? There's been a growing movement in our culture And we see it with the transgender issue. We see it with some of the LGBT issues of people deciding that what scripture declares to be true is irrelevant because they refuse to accept the sovereignty of God and the right of God to intervene in their lives. And they feel that they have, within the scope of their own humanity, the right, in fact, the duty to some kind of self-fulfillment. I think probably one of the most frightening books I've read in the last 10 years was written by Carl Truman a few years back, where he talked about how the whole quest for autonomy and expressive individualism has taken over our culture, and people seem to believe that they have a right to decide completely on their own what's right, what's wrong, how to handle the body that God has given them, and it is a terrifying situation that we live in, I believe. What does the term death with dignity mean? Ordinarily, people use that term to describe death on my own terms. And you have some people that will, the literature of assisted suicide and the whole Jack Kevorkian movement during the 1990s is littered with people who discover that they have a disease And while that disease is not circumscribing their their lives at this point to any great extent, they're fearful of what it might lead to. And so they want to end it all on their own terms, on their own timetable, in their own way. 
And so that's where the death with dignity people and the physician assisted suicide people kind of meet in the center. There's a very telling trajectory of what where that leads if we look at the Netherlands, which was an early adopter of physician-assisted suicide. And their claim is that it's without any kind of abuse, that people are simply going and making decisions on their own and doctors are accommodating them. But increasingly, the anecdotal literature, as well as some of the case studies, are showing that people are being euthanized even against their will in the Netherlands because either a doctor thinks it's, quote, the best thing for them where a family member intervenes and has agitated for that. Several years ago, before he was part of the Supreme Court as an associate justice, Neil Gorsuch wrote a very important book on that whole topic. And in it, he uh, had a full chapter on the Dutch experience and how dangerous it is and how it doesn't live up to the claims that it would like to make. And I I would commend Associate Justice Gorsuch's book on assisted suicide and euthanasia to anyone that's interested in that topic. Pastor Dennis McFadden is our guest. We're talking about Christian decision-making and the end of life. How does he respond to someone who says that in many times, the hospice situation is no different from assisted suicide or euthanasia? Thanks to you, Issues Etc. consistently ranks among the top podcasts in religion and spirituality with Apple Podcasts. Please help us reach more listeners in 2024 by making a year-end gift. For a year-end donation of $250 or more, we'll send you our forthcoming book, Objections Overruled 3, and a new recording of 15 hymns featuring the Lutheran Public Radio Choir. You can make a secure online contribution at issuesetc.org. Thanks for listening. And thanks for your support. Many educational institutions are governed by the whims of culture and are increasingly hostile to the Word of God. In contrast, Faith Lutheran School in Plano, Texas, provides classical Lutheran education rooted in God's Word for students preschool through grade 12. Simply put, we equip students to stand firm in the faith through solid education focused on wisdom and virtue. We offer in-person instruction as well as live online classes for remote learning. To learn more, visit flsplano.org, flsplano.org. Husband, wife, daughter, son, grandchildren, godchildren, pastor, the kids at church, basically everyone of your Christian loved ones is catered for at Ad Crucem. We are the place to go for all your Christmas purchases. Stock up on our amazing Christmas cards, Christmons, Christmas ornaments, unique Christian jewellery, springly cookie moulds, gifts and much more. Visit adcrucem.com. That's A-D-C-R-U-C-E-M dot com. Not everyone is comfortable with new technology. Dial A Podcast gives all generations of your congregation an easy way to hear your sermons or even devotionals and Bible studies. Once you've completed a simple one-time setup, we take care of the rest. All your congregants have to do is dial the number from any phone to listen to your latest podcast, all at no additional cost to them. Dial A Podcast. Extend the reach of your sermons. Get started at dialapodcast.com now. Your lifeline to the Lutheran worldview. You're listening to Issues Etc. When Martin Luther preached the dedication for the Torgau Church, he asserted 
that nothing else happen in this house, but that our dear Lord speak to us and we respond in prayer, thanksgiving, and praise. Issues Etc. guest Dr. John Pless. The same could be said of Concordia Theological Seminary. This is a place where our Lord speaks to us through his word, and we respond in joyful and thankful confession. We therefore invite you to visit our campus where the word of Christ dwells among us richly. Learn more about studying for the vocations of pastor or deaconess at ctsfw.edu or call 1-800-481-2155. Forming Servants in Jesus Christ to Teach the Faithful, Reach the Lost, and Care for All. Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. ctsfw.edu or 1-800-481-2155. Welcome back. I'm Todd Wilkin. We're talking about Christian decision-making and the end of life. Pastor Dennis McFadden is our guest, pastoral assistant at Emanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He spent nearly two decades as a senior living community executive, including president and CEO of a large retirement community in Southern California. I is for a special word that's called the incarnation. God, the Son, took our flesh to earn our salvation Jesus' earthly father was named Joseph, who is J. In faith, he heard the angel's words and hastened to obey. From the Issues Etc., a book of the month for December, N is for Nativity. This children's book is appropriate for kids between 5 and 9, and you can find it at our website, issuesetc.org, or call Concordia Publishing House and order N is for Nativity, 1-800-325-3040. 1-800-325-3040. Pastor McFadden, how do you respond to those who say that in hospice situations, it is very often the case that the patient is given doses of morphine that do ease suffering, but also undeniably hasten death. And they'll say, well, that's no different from assisted suicide or euthanasia. Dr. Mylander, who is an LCMS ethicist, I think has some excellent comments on that. He argues that in the Western ethical tradition, we generally accept the fact that there's a double effect such that if you intend to do something that's good, and that is your aim, even if it has an unintended, although perfectly understandable and predictable outcome, the positive aim trumps the negative effect. An example would be, we wouldn't say that a soldier who volunteered for a mission that was called a suicide mission was guilty of committing suicide. He doesn't go into battle with the intention of being killed. He goes in battle because he believes in his country and he wants to support his government and freedom and the rest of that. But it may be very predictable that the odds are so stacked against him that by going into a particular battle, the likelihood of him coming out alive is very small. When the doctor administers morphine in a hospice to relieve intractable pain, that the aim is to care for the person, not to harm them, but there's a risk that the morphine at certain dosages will suppress respiration, and as a result, a person might actually pass away quicker than they would if they didn't have it. What do we need to know about advanced directives? 
Well, I'm tempted to get on my preacher's soapbox and yell as loud as I can, don't get a living will. There are two basic kinds of advanced directives. One is a living will, and the other is a proxy document that is called an advanced healthcare directive. It goes by a number of different names, but a living will tries to throw my autonomy into the distant future and to establish all the conditions of what should surround my dying. And the problem with that is a 35-year-old may have very little idea what a 75-year-old version of themselves would actually think was right or wrong. And for a whole number of reasons, the the living will advance directive, I think, is ill-advised. On the other hand, to sign an an advance directive that is a power of attorney for health care, I think makes a lot of sense. Now, the chief argument against that is I don't want to be a burden to my loved ones. I want to make all the decisions myself so that they don't have to be burdened. I mean, after all, one of my kids is at odds with another one of my kids. And if the one makes a decision, the other will disagree and it'll be the source of dissension for the rest of their lives and things like that. But I think, again, Mylander puts it well in an article, a very short article he wrote where he said, I want to be a burden to my loved ones. And his argument is that family is about love and love assumes risks. And we want to entrust the decisions surrounding our last minutes and last days to someone we trust. In my own case, I have five children. Two of them are pastors. And one of them was trained as an attorney, but I did not pick the attorney to be my power of attorney. I picked my daughter here in Fort Wayne because I trust her that when she meets with the pastor, when she meets with the physician, when she meets with those that detail what the test results are, should I get to that point and I'm unable to make a decision on my own, I trust her to do what's best. Not necessarily what I might have thought I wanted 30 years earlier, but based on everything that is facing her, talking to the physician and the pastor, I trust her to make the right decision. And that's why I believe strongly advanced directives can be useful. There are some problems. Some doctors will not always honor them. Sometimes they're not always available at the time that they're needed. It's a good idea if a person has a advanced directive power of attorney for health care that they see to it that a copy is in their medical file so that when the time comes, the, the physician will know who to talk to to make decisions if the person herself or himself is not conscious and able to do that. When is it morally permissible to refuse treatment? The conservative Christian position in accordance with scripture and our confessions and with our tradition is to say that one may refuse treatment either when it is medically useless or when it is excessively burdensome. Now, by excessively burdensome, that doesn't mean that I'm on a ventilator and my kids are tired of coming to the hospital and it's emotionally wrenching for them to see me in that position. That excessively burdensome is for me, not for them. I remember in my nearly two decades in long-term care, we had 
people that were 105 years old and one of our physicians just could not resist every intrusive test, procedure, surgery, medication possible because he could not admit defeat. And I remember vividly a 105-year-old who said, I'm ready to go home and meet Jesus. And the doctor said, not on my watch, you're not. And he put her through a hip replacement surgery. And those of us in the community thought that was horrible. But there are some who just cannot ever, ever, ever let go. And they act as if it's a matter of their own defeat if one of their patients passes away. And so... I hate to see a position where we turn human life into an idol independent of our faith, but at the same time, the burdensome criterion is referring to burdensome to the person. It may be that a person is in a state of renal failure and administering fluids would bloat them and put them in a very painful situation. Sometimes it is more humane to discontinue IV fluids with someone in in end-stage kidney failure, even though that runs contrary to our sense of what's right and what's wrong. We, We don't want to deprive people of food and water. Well, in certain circumstances, it may be more painful for them to receive that treatment than not to. We're talking with Pastor Dennis McFadden about Christian decisions and the end of life. When we come back, How should we approach those decisions? Solid. Serious. Substantive. You're listening to Issues Etc. Teach, learn, connect at Louisville's Our Savior Lutheran Church and School. Our school is the only LCMS school in the greater Louisville metro area. It's a traditional Christian school with a rich history of academic excellence. From preschool through eighth grade, our teachers, staff, and church congregation connect with children across our city every day. Learn more online at Facebook or Twitter or call 502-426-0864. Lutherans for Life equips Lutherans and their neighbors to be gospel-motivated voices for life. For more information on their pro-life efforts and resources, visit lutheransforlife.org, lutheransforlife.org. We're talking about Christian decision-making and the end of life. Pastor Dennis McFadden is our guest. In about five minutes, we'll have Dr. Scott Stegemeyer respond to the argument that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone. So, Dennis, how should we approach these end-of-life decisions? I think the best-prepared people for end-of-life decisions are those who have, first of all, taken care of the legal requirements of a will, the distribution of their property, who have sat down with their children and grandchildren and got as much closure as they can get about the relationship who have sought out the counsel of their pastor, been ministered to by their pastor, received the comfort of the gospel, the assurance that comes to us through the sacraments, to receive the body and blood of Jesus Christ, to hear the words of comfort that come from the scriptures to us, perhaps to have the pastor sing hymns to us Mm -hmm. as we're there in the hospital, and to be ready 
to make those decisions in concert with the family, the pastor, and their physician. How do we deal with the fear of death? Well, I've got a few years on you, Todd. I celebrated my 70th birthday this past summer, and when I got together with 26 of my kids and grandkids, I reminded them, first of all, that I'd reached the three score and 10, and that means that for me, every breath from here on out is a cliffhanger. And they didn't think that was funny, but I, I thought it was funny. And then I talked to them very candidly about what the scripture teaches us about the assurance of the gospel and the comfort of forgiveness through Jesus Christ and how that is the best preparation as we age. And every time we go to the doctor, we discover new maladies and new conditions and new problems to be dealt with, to realize that our lives are in his hands. And this is the same one who at the first days of April in 33 AD, got his grief-stricken disciples together for dinner and said, you believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come back for you to take you where I am, you may be also. And I think that kind of message of the gospel is the best way to be prepared for end of life and end of life decisions. As we age, most of us are going to start accumulating conditions. The last time I went to my hematologist, she told me that I had a rather severe condition and she said it could kill me. And then she said, but you ain't dead yet. That is unfortunately the reality that we all face. We are all suffering from a terminal condition. We will all one day come to a point of death. And being prepared with the comfort of the gospel is, I think, the best thing people could do. So talk about the opportunity for the entire congregation, the pastor, to offer that comfort to Christians in the face of their own deaths. Well, it depends on the context. I think that the pastor offers that comfort every time there's a funeral in the church that's attended by the members of the congregation, every time they hear the gospel proclaimed and applied rather pointedly to the existential reality of someone who has passed from their midst, that is applying the comfort of the gospel. Every time, every week, there are a crew of us, mostly pastor emeriti at our church, who flood the hospitals. Every one of our people at Emmanuel gets a hospital visit every day. Blessedly, we have enough spare pastors around who can make sure that happens. And every shut-in gets a visit every month with communion. And so I think that in that kind of pastoral care, the home for the shut-in and in the hospital for the one who's there, the reading of scripture, the use of wonderful liturgical resources like the pastoral companion that Concordia Publishing puts out, that can be a tremendous way to minister hope and forgiveness, bring communion to a shut-in, to be able to give them again that tangible token of the body and blood of Jesus Christ given for them, that they can taste it in their very own mouths, what he has done for them. Those are all ways that I think that we prepare our people. A book came out a couple of years ago that I'm kind of high on, and I've told my pastor that if the time comes that I am in extremis in the hospital, I want him to come and I want him to do two things. I want him to sing 
God's own child, I gladly say it, because after six decades as a Baptist, these last 12 years have been so blessed to be able to celebrate the reality of what it means to be a Lutheran Christian. But then a few years ago, Concordia Press published a book by Nikolai called The Joy of Eternal Life. And I told my pastor that I want him to read from that book to me because Nikolai was facing the death of something like 15, 1600 people from his village. And he watched their bodies going by his window. And as a result, he went on a year long project of writing a book reflecting on what the Christian hope means in the face of certain death. And it is one of the great resources that Concordia Publishing has come out with. And so I've told my pastors that if I get to that point, I want them to sit at my bedside and read a bit to me from The Joy of Eternal Life by Philip Nikolai. Pastor Dennis McFadden is pastoral assistant at Emmanuel Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana. He spent nearly two decades as a senior living community executive, including president and CEO of a large retirement community in Southern California. Folks, the Commission on Theology and Church Relations for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod has produced a new document titled Christian Decision-Making and the End of Life. You'll find a link to this free resource on the Talk On Demand archives page at issuesetc.org. Dennis, thank you very much. Thanks so much for having me, Todd. I appreciate it. Dr. Scott Stegemeyer is with us after the break. We're going to respond to the argument that sex before marriage between consenting people doesn't hurt anyone. week on the word of the lord endures forever we continue in the prophet micah with prophets denounced the mountain of the lord's house the lord of the whole earth O little town of bethlehem and a remnant delivered join me pastor will whedon for the word of the lord endures forever your daily 15 minute verse by verse bible study on demand listen at the or your favorite podcast provider Our children are always a blessing to us, but not only are we blessed by them, but we have opportunities to bless them as well. Pastor Christopher Nuttleman, in the December issue of The Lutheran Witness, takes up the topic of blessing your children, how to bless them in your home, with the Word of God and prayer. To learn more, pick up your copy of the December issue of The Lutheran Witness. Visit cph.org slash witness to subscribe or visit witness.lsms.org to learn more. The Lutheran Witness, helping you interpret the world from a Lutheran perspective. Prayer, Meditation, The Assaults of Satan, You're Listening to Issues Etc. Memoria Press's award-winning Latin programs have successfully taught hundreds of thousands of students across the world. Their easy-to-use, step-by-step Latin curriculum provides students with an academic vocabulary, a mastery of English grammar, and strong critical thinking skills. If you're interested in learning more, visit them at memoriapress.com. And use the coupon code LPR24 at checkout. Memorial Press, saving Western civilization, one student at a time. With the oldest deaconess program of the LCMS, Concordia University Chicago has fully certified young women for the deaconess vocation for more than 40 years. I'm Deaconess Kristen Wasilak, Program Director for Deaconess Studies. 
Help us identify the next generation of servants to care for souls, engage our communities in mercy, and teach God's Word. Learn more about Concordia Chicago's Deaconess Program today at cuchicago.edu. cuchicago.edu.